Dotnet Rocks, episode 1071, with guest Ian Cooper. Recorded Wednesday, December 3rd, 2014. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And we're in the Fishbowl at NDC. We are at Grand Central here, actually, right right in the flow of everything. Yeah, we apologize if it's noisy, but uh, we're out in the middle of the floor. and uh, Well, and, and not that far from the coffee machine, which, let's face it, you know, yeah, that's Kate Gregory told us a long time ago, just nothing but machines that convert caffeine into code. That's right. Yeah, the developers love to flock there, and of course, they love to talk. So yes. if you can put up with the noise, uh, we can, too. Uh, it'll be great. Yeah. Uh, Ian Cooper's here. We'll be talking to him in a minute. But first, let's uh, roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, uh, I've talked about N-Audio before. Yes, sure. N-Audio is a .NET audio toolkit that does all sorts of low-level audio stuff. Uh, I went looking for a way because I'm doing music to code by. Yeah, of course. And well. that's coming along really nicely. I heard it one of the 20-minute loops. Yeah, it's a little late, and I'm sorry, but life happens. And it, it wouldn't be a crowd-funded project if it wasn't late. You're right about that, yeah. So, anyway, um, I was looking for a way to create a little app so that we could experiment with doing a multi-track version of it. Oh, interesting. Okay. In other words, you have the drums and the loop, the drum loop on one track, the bass on another, the guitar, acoustic guitar, and, hmm. and uh, uh, the piano. And we just want to loop them and have individual volume controls okay. and be able to mute. And so that's essentially all it is. So track I wrote a track. little version of that to start. And it's a great, it, even if you don't like music to code by music, if you're looking to do your own sort of looping app, you know, okay. where you're, you're like, you're a DJ, you want to create the ultimate looper app, mm-hmm. you know, where you can just plug things in and push buttons and stuff. Go to tinyurl.com slash looping mixer. So this is the, and this is just going to download a zip file. And right. this is WPF source. So it uses Zen Audio. And uh, the, the key to this working is a class called Loopstream, which derives from WaveStream. And WaveStream is an N Audio right. stream that does wave file playing. But Loopstream adds the ability to uh, automatically go back to the beginning when it's done and it's pretty easy how it works if you know about streams you override the read method and then basically when you get to the end you just set the position back to zero so it, it never stops reading right essentially and when you're done reading it just starts reading again and uh, that's pretty much it it's very simple and it works great and i was surprised at how in sync the loops were when i, I loaded them all up and then just played all at once you know just play 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 all four loops and they just perfectly synced up and when they loop back around perfectly synced up uh, maybe it's because i'm running on a nice machine i don't know i'd like <laughs> to try it with some constraints of memory and processor but i think uh it's a good start anyway that's what i got and cool man if nice you're, yeah enjoy it modify the source mess around with it and if you do something fun let me know. Yeah, you need to throw it up on GitHub, I think. Probably. Make it into a project. Yeah. Well, I, I'll fix it up a little bit first. Sure. It's very, very basic. Nice. Yeah. But it is C-sharp, even though it's basic. Can't go wrong. It's basic C-sharp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard that one before. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1062, the one we did with Mr. Scott Ford, about brownfield applications, which I gotta say had a real set of comment storms around it. Yeah. Like lots of people talking a lot. I think we hit a button there. And, uh, and I've read a few comments from that show actually, because there have been so many good ones. This one's from Mike Henderson. He mm. said, the discussion of literature for programming reminded me of a lecture in college about the maturity of a given discipline. Mm. The lecturer argued that a body of literature was a defining characteristic of maturity. The context was art and music, but one find parallels in programming. Hmm. Putting the .NET framework and the larger world that is open source, I mean, he's referring to the fact that the .NET framework is being open source, on platforms such as GitHub can be that literature for a more mature craft. Hmm. 
It's like we've hit a point now of a maturity where it's all essentially on display with a broader set of contributors and so forth. I think it's a really interesting comparison. It is. I love that I can compare my coding practices with something as authoritative as the .NET framework source code. So just being able to take your own code alongside .NET, you know, they were all... How did they do it? All, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I think is really interesting going forward now with the .NET framework being open source is Monoproject is going to benefit from that. Sure. The, the, we're going to have a better version of .NET for, for Linux and who knows how many other platforms. Yeah, and uh, and who knows how much they're learning from each other. Well, without a doubt, it only makes for better product in the end. Right. And I think it speaks you know, volumes to this whole idea of, of really mature software mm-hmm. is willing to be scrutinized and mm-hmm. willing to be shared. Yeah, in a very broad way. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for your comment. The .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And, folks, Ian Cooper is here. Ian has over 20 years of experience delivering Microsoft platform solutions in government, healthcare, and finance. During that time, he's worked for the DTI, Reuters. What is the DTI, Ian? Partner of Trade Industry. Okay. Uh, bo- uh, board of Trade, I think you guys call it in the Oh, US. sure. Okay, the DTI, Reuters, SunGuard, Mises, Beasley, and Huddle, delivering everything from bespoke enterprise solutions, shrink-wrapped products, and cloud services to thousands of customers. Now, I'm old enough to have shipped people boxes of disks. <laughs> that which is which, awesome. Which, 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 when it goes wrong, and, you, and you're a junior programmer, and you realize you shipped a bug, and someone says to you, I'm gonna, we're going to have to ship a whole new box of discs. Yes. You begin to learn the, the perils of defects in your software. Yeah, that really, oh, no, we have to reinstall. Oh, there goes the day. <laughs> yeah. I remember those days. Man. Yeah. It's yeah th- there was a reason that people were angry when you shipped a defective box of discs. That's yeah. a lot of time to find the yeah. defect yeah. for yeah. all of those people. So uh, Ian is also a passionate exponent of software craftsmanship and agile architecture. When he's not writing code, he's also the founder of the London.net user group and speaks at events throughout the UK. So uh, this is going to be a very interesting show. And thanks for, thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be here. I've got a lot of experience over here. <laughs> yeah. have been doing this for a I, while. I've got gray in the beard, so <laughs> yeah. um, I have been doing it for a while. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I was... Um, because I've worked with people from all age ranges now at Huddle. We've got graduate developers up to those of some more experienced. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I like to say to them, you know, I started my career the first time that dynamic languages and NoSQL were popular. Right. Um, <laughs> long before we made the transition into static languages and SQL systems, right. fleeing the horror that was dynamic languages and NoSQL behind us. Right. Um, right. Uh, and everything comes back around again, it seems, if you wait long enough in our industry. It sure does. It sure and does, that just yeah. tells you that the, these ideas are are good they were good then they're good now yeah you know they just get more mature what is yeah, it's one of the reasons i found that particular comment so compelling was this idea of what stuff looks like when it's mature yeah yeah and you know, what impact that actually has it, it, it is interesting as an industry whether we whether we uh, and some of the things that i talk about is, is actually going back to some of the kind of like computer science that people have kind oh. of i guess forgotten mm. is whether we do are, are bad as an industry at actually um, having a body of knowledge that we that we, we build on, or whether we just keep relearning the same thing again and again and again, and I and I, I wonder if we're good at that or not. And but, so I, yeah, a perfectly valid concern because I also think we're addicts to the problem. Like, be yes. I, it's kind of fun to relearn and re-exercise right. and, and try again. And not only fun, but you know, going through the process of understanding why you need something is really teaches you a lot more than just regurgitating Sure, yeah. I'm not saying to somebody else, you know, I, I, I'm quite good at understanding how RMs work because in my past at some point I tried to build one. And, yes. and that's actually quite a useful experience. And I yeah. think some of the thing that a junior developer is trying to do sometimes when you think he's reinventing the wheel is actually trying in his own way to understand how that problem is solved Absolutely. by right. providing his own solution for it and learns a lot in that process. We kind of need a better way, I think, of giving people the opportunity to do that. I think open source is a great way for people to actually do that, is for them to contribute towards projects that may build those things in a way that's reusable for yeah. um, outside the actual day-to-day development they're sure. doing. And I think you can scratch that itch. I think that's why a lot of those newer, the, 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 the languages that have newer frameworks like Node are very popular because there's a possibly to scratch the itch of get in there and actually be a person that works on an ORM that that language uses right. and 
get that kind of experience, understanding of how those basic parts of kit work. My reaction when I saw Node was, okay, people are tired of the Swiss Army Knife web server. So they're going to go, they're going to go get each blade individually themselves. Mm -hmm. And I respect, well, as a guy who was pretty comfortable with IIS, like it bothered me less than a lot of other folks, I respected that position. It's like, okay, you want to assemble it? That makes total sense. You're going to get tired of it, you know, of ownership of all of those pieces yourself, but you also own it all. Yeah, because so many folks that are firing up something like like IIS, which is a, a really large tool set, and just having no idea what blades they've got or what's on. Yeah. you know they they leave a big attack surface. They they've got stuff that's unnecessary because they, they're just not aware of it. I think also when, when, I think it's a good analogy is the Swiss Army knife versus the blades, and I think also the other thing that comes up then is that you can actually put, conceive of the idea of saying, well, I could make this blade better. Right. Whereas making a whole Swiss Army knife yourself is a is a task where you just you balk at it unless yeah, you were very insane. The unfair part about calling it a Swiss Army knife is just not being aware of how all those knives are actually connected together. And I know you want to make that blade better, but it hits all these other blades too. And that brings us very nicely into ports and adapters where you're, it does, you're, it? you're yeah. sort of deconstructing things and making things modular and granular so that they can be fixed and understood on their own without affecting the rest of the system. Yeah, I mean, the reason I really like, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I tend to look back at some of the computer science stuff that's from the past, and, um, you know, I was looking back, I did, did a whole, uh, I, I run a, I, I don't run, but I uh, do the, uh, curate really the tracks for a conference called Progressive.net here in London, and I did a big piece there on architectural styles, and back in the mid-90s at Carnegie Mellon, uh, Mary Shaw and David Gentle particularly came up with this notion of architectural styles, and it was saying, well, we can, you know, we, what we want to have is a language for discussing architecture so that we can compare architectures and see how they work. Mm. Um, those of you that have actually read Fielding's paper on rest, most people read chapters five and six, which are about rest. There's one to four is about architectural styles for network applications. Right. It mm-hmm. builds on that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And, and they, it's a very simple model. They simply said you can describe any architecture as having components and connectors. And components are things that do stuff, and connectors are how they talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Right? And any architecture consists of components that have some kind of constraints or invariants. Mm. So layered architecture, which kind of we're all pretty familiar with, is just one where essentially we say about those components, okay, this component can talk to adjacent components only. And in fact, we have this kind of what we call a golf and a wedding cake model where uh, I can talk to the component below me, which I can, which I can depend on. It can't depend on me. So there's no circular yeah. references. Right. It's a way of saying, we've got a lot of code. What I want to do is manage the coupling between those pieces of code so I can replace bits more easily or I can modify a given layer more easily without, without inputting everything else. Right. It's very uh, hierarchical the, yeah. that way, in one directional. Exactly. And, and a common, most people are familiar with a very common layered approach because, you know, there's the common a website that talks to database. Yep. So most people are very familiar with the kind of presentation layer, application services layer, which is some kind of layer where you're saying, um, at a more granular level than the domain model, I want to have expose up some kind of contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the domain model itself, and then maybe some infrastructure layer that deals with talking to database in the kind of IO you're doing generally. Um, but it doesn't have to be those specific layers. There's nothing in the layered architecture style that says it must be those specific. That's just a very common set of layers. All that ports and adapters architecture says really is, okay, I can, I can, I'm going to give you given constraints for those layers. So I'm going to say there's a domain model layer, and that's going to be what we might call POCO or plain old CLR objects. So right. essentially we're divorced from all those kind of usually IO concerns yeah. around network or database. Um, and there's a ports layer that sits on top of that. And it says, I'm the way you talk to that domain model. Yeah. So I'm a, this, but like the application service layer, I'm more granular. Mm-hmm. I'm probably at the level of some kind of, what those of us old enough might call it a use case or younger mm-hmm. uh, kids would call it a given when then or whatever, et cetera. Yeah. But I'm, I'm more at that kind of level. And outside that is the adapters. And they're how I do all this IO. They're right. how essentially I get the request in onto my ASP.NET, um, you know, MVC endpoint. And I say, right, okay, I marshal out the parameters from the request. And now I just call through my port to my domain to get to make something happen. Yeah. Or I call out, out via to the database through a port to say, go and talk to the database. And, and, and part of the value of this is around the fact that uh, the example I always use is imagine a world in which we decided that web forms was not the greatest 
um, .NET uh, yeah, web platform. Crazy talk. Crazy, crazy talk. Man. Crazy talk. And imagine yeah. we had this new idea called MVC, a, a radical new proposition. Yeah, uh, that's a hard time getting my head around. Yeah, I understand the idea that web forms might be replaced is a bit shocking, but imagine that yeah. it was. The problem for most people is the more I have built my code, coupled it into that technology concern, writing things in code behind, etc., yeah. the more difficult it is now to move to embrace that new framework and take advantage of the opportunities it's offering. Or mm-hmm. to reuse that code somehow when a new technology comes along. Exactly. Yeah. But if I have this port layer, which is actually how I get to the domain model, which is doing stuff for me, what I can just do really is say, well, actually all I do in my adapter code is call my port. Right. It's marshaled some parameters in and I just call my port. So I can just really put a new ASP.MVC endpoint in and just call my port. And sure, I have to deal with the things it needs to deal with, essentially taking the HTTP request and turning it into something helpful, like sure, a action on a controller. And that's that, it. That's all it does. Then I just call the port. Yeah. And the same is true of, you know, databases. You know, imagine a world in which, you know, ADA.net is not the only way I might talk to my database. <laughs> Again, Imagine Microsoft trying to crazy, change Richard. their mind about data access. Yeah. An unheard of proposition. No. <laughs> we know how stable that is. Yeah, we had that all figured out a long time ago. Yeah, Why did. would we change? Why would we change any of that? My I brother can ideas. do this in access. <laughs> um, again, so if you have some kind of abstraction, a DAO or a repository, whatever you want to call your preference, right? Um, then you just keep calling that, and you don't really care what's actually behind it. No, um, shouldn't be important. Yeah. And so... Uh, I mean, the Rails community talked about um, hexagonal architectures. In fact, uh, DHH behind, but guy behind Rails that doesn't like that doesn't like it very much. Well, uh, first of all, before you go on, uh, you just said hexagonal architecture, which oh, really is another name for ports. That's a and really adapters. good point. Yeah, hexagonal architectures. It, it, it's a really good point because ports and adapters is probably a better name because yeah. say you say hexagonal, and everyone starts saying, "What is that?" But mean? what are the six sides for? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tell me about this lug nut. Yes. <laughs> so this side is this, and what does side number three do? Yeah. And I think. That, what, what, Alistair Coburn is the guy that created the ports and adapters architecture idea originally. Yeah. Although, I mean, Bob Martin's got a really interesting uh, post. I think it's called something like um, the the essential architecture or I can't what it's called. But he, he talks about the history of it, saying actually there's quite a lot of co-invention of this idea. Right. Um, these particular layers are not necessarily – it's something that Alistair essentially isolated, but it's not necessarily originating there. Um, but he chose Hexagon because he wanted the idea to say um, – the ports are like the ports onto a computer. They're an area where you talk to. And so each one of these sides represents a given set of calls you're making about right. some area like the customers or um, uh, the uh, the product area, etc. So you wanted people to see it in that kind of, that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, this port deals with that. Uh, uh, but you could equally show it as circles and then think the onion architecture is which is jeffrey palermo i think mm-hmm. um is a very similarish kind of idea but it just shows it in in, in circles and it's an idea of an onion uh, having different layers right. to it. Right. so yeah i i use both terms ports and adapters is probably a better term because it, it focuses on the key idea the, plus the, you these get it two easily. really distinctive abstractions right? the, yeah points of where we do functionality and points of where we do communication right exactly you know, I, I appreciate that, that that separation is important because it, we're going to replace them differently too, right? And you've, right. you've cited two very clear cases of a case where we replaced a port and a case where we replaced an adapter. And we haven't even talked about testing yet. I mean, when you have these things individually isolated, it's easy to test any one of them. Right, yeah. So one of the big things that Alistair mentions is that obviously your test is another adapter. So they can actually call your um, ports. And I do quite a big uh, talk, which there are various copies of various conferences we're talking about called TDD, Where Did It All Go Wrong? <laughs> where I, 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 I talk about the fact that, you know, one of the big problems I've seen with owning, t- I mean, I've been doing TDD for 10 years. One of the big problems I've seen with people in ownership of TDD test suites is when your tests know too much about the implementation details of your code and, and how your domain functions. Uh, and that makes it difficult to refactor. What happens is you come along and you think I'm refactoring to add some new functionality and you end up breaking 20 tests and changing them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually the promise of refactoring is that you didn't change any tests. You just, you're improving your implementation. You've right. got, you had a better algorithm for figuring out the shipping, uh, between two points and you figured out a better way to say I could actually do a quicker, a quicker route uh, finding algorithm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in theory, the calling code that just says give me a route shouldn't care that you've changed implementation. But quite often we write our tests so that we know about all the individual tiny classes that make up our, sure 
sure, and all the shipping algorithms. If I change it, then I have to change in my test. All the parameters on the methods. Right. You know, I, I'm going to take all these parameters, turn them into one object now, and boom, that's gone. And, but if you if you write your test against this port layer, which is this contract, which is really the other, the other consumers are using, that's much more stable usually right. over time because mm-hmm. it's just saying, hey, something in the domain calculates the shipping cost between these two points, and it's some fancy algorithm. All I care about really is that if I put in this set of test data, I get this set of test results out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's moving the unit testings, the developer testing slightly up. I mean, the interesting thing is if you go and read Kent's book, I mean, he uses unit testing about once. Most of the time he talks about developer tests, programmer tests. And I think I've seen him say that using the word unit test is kind of a mistake because it encouraged people to think about the classical unit integration acceptance test mm-hmm. division and bring lots of baggage from that. Right. And really what he was talking about is his only use of the word unit was to say isolate one test from another. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, sure, there's a lot of things you can do around taking away the IO, for example. So that's, I mean, you know, if you're writing a ports and depth as architecture, one of the really useful things is, of course, you can easily mock these ports that tend to be, you know, uh, deflecting the I/O away from you. So particularly the, the, the stuff where you're talking to a database, there's really easy places to kind of mock stuff out. Yeah, but mm. um, you don't have to. It's only there to avoid really, from Kent's perspective, shared fixture problems. I two tests talking to the same database interact with each other, or mm. performance problems. It's slow, but there's nothing in the original model of TDD which said I have to essentially only test that class in isolation. Right. One of, one of the things that this is reminding me of is the actor model. Right. Where you have these isolated actors that just send messages to each other. And it doesn't look as if the uh, ports and adapters architecture goes that far, but uh, it just certainly doesn't disallow it. It doesn't, no. And we, we, we tend to find the way we tend to implement ports quite often is we end up with a kind of command query separation happening with the mm-hmm. ports. We have ports that essentially say, well, some of these are commands which are updating the domain, and some of these are just querying the domain. Yeah. And it isn't true necessarily CQRS at that point, but you get that kind of separation. Yeah, you, it's like you can see CQRS from here. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whether you want to go down the full formal implementation exactly, of yeah. the whole pattern, but it's like you haven't blocked that out. There's a reason why CQRS came to be. Right. That idea of separating command and query is a good idea. It is a good yeah. idea. But I think there's more than one way to get there, too. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. And at that point, we tend to find that the command is quite often a transactional boundary. Yeah. You're doing something where you're saying, okay, when I, when I exercise this command, I begin a transaction, I load up the state of my domain model, I exercise something in my domain to change the state, mm-hmm. I flush the new state away, and maybe I notify other things that need to know that that happened. Yeah. And that's very close to an actor model at that point mm-hmm. on right. that, on that right, on right side operation. So. Yeah, we are, when we when we do hex uh, huddle, we tend to find quite often that that ports and architecture is evolving to something that's starting to look a lot like the actor model. This is just a natural benefit of a real clear architecture to keep a separation of concern. Mm-hmm. Like everything appears simpler yeah. when you're living in this separation of concern environment. I think the other thing we tend to find about it is that you know one of the big uh, reasons I see for having a kind of clear architecture in terms of layers beyond the the notional areas around reuse and separation of concerns and testing is actually simply the ability for developers to reason about the software. Mm-hmm. When we, you know, we have some, we will, I'm sure we've all seen kind of brownfield code where essentially someone says to you, can you go and fix this right. uh, defect? And you're like, well, I don't actually understand from the front end to the back end how this thing is going to work. I've got nobody to predict where this problem might be and where I should start looking. Right. Whereas if you actually have a more structured layered architecture, you can say, well, the problem is with X, and therefore, actually, if I go and look here, that's likely to be the area where I can find the, this kind of problem. If the problem is to do with my input-output, you know, I'm not getting the right stuff written from the database, I know where to look. If it's right. to do with the marshalling of the um, uh, web request, I'm going to know where to look. If it's to do with actually my domain logic, I'm going to know where to look. So I can actually... It narrows down for me exactly where this problem is likely to be. It's also where I always thought TDD would shine, yeah. is that your ability to switch out working components on either side of a, of a component of concern and run a set of tests so that you can see the only piece of code that's currently functioning here is this part. Everything yeah. else is a fake, and we're right. still having the error. Mm-hmm. I bet it's there. Yeah, you know, that, exactly. And yeah. that was something, you know, as an operate, as a, a tuning guy, you know, we, we always ended up coming in and retrofitting this sort of testing infrastructure into the app i wanted tdd to do that from the outset so it was always there it just i don't know that it has ever manifest itself that way that well 
Yeah, I and mean, I think some of the problem with, with, with you know we had two problems. One problem was convincing developers to do test driven development. It was actually worth the, or, the time because uh, it is a time. Yeah, and I think talking about maturity earlier, you know, and mm-hmm. then the, the second problem is once actually developers have begun to practice test driven, it's, it's a question of saying, hey, how can you improve the practice and get more back from right. it? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of that is an industry is learning. Uh, it's learning where we have organizations that did go away and build test suites and have owned those test suites for a while and, mm-hmm. have, and can give feedback on what worked and what didn't work and what was useful and what wasn't useful about those approaches. Right. Um, we often talk about tests as documentation, you know, yes. and, and quite often you can find tests where really the guy that wrote that test probably understood what he was testing, but nobody since has ever understood <laughs> what that test was doing. Um, and we even have some tests which you look at and you think, you know, nothing's actually being tested here other than that we call these mocks. Right. Uh, and and I'm sure when the guy was writing it, 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 doing it step by step, it seemed to make sense to him. And when you come in then later and review it, it's like, really what we're we doing here? Yeah. Um, and one of the advantages I find at the port of depth architecture, testing at that port layer, is that it tends to be more explicitly testing behavior. Right. And behavior testing, you know, I'm not necessarily getting full into BDD. Um, Dan was in this office earlier, Dan North. And Dan, his original post on BDD, where he really just talked about people missing the point in test-driven development and saying, it's not about testing method on the class. It's about testing the behavior that the class kind of gives you. Right. And, and the port's quite a good layer because what the port layer is, is saying, these are the behaviors that I'm exposing. This notion of a facade, a layer quite often what we have is a facade. Mm-hmm. And we say, you don't want to know the details of how this layer is implemented. You don't want to depend on those because you'll then be overcoupled to those if they ever change. Right. What you want is a contract, a facade, which, which which hides those implementation details from you and exposes them up. That's just object orientation, right? We all get that. It's object orientation at an architectural level rather than kind of a level of a class. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we say, right, okay, this facade, because it's going to be more coarse-grained, it's probably going to have operations that we can talk of like, yeah, which are more behavioral. It's going to say something like, effectively, you know, determine whether this is a, now a gold customer. Where it's going to go away and do some calculation to determine your purchase history, and are we going to bump you up to gold customer right. status or whatever? Yeah. Um, and those are much easier levels to write tests mm-hmm. because your tests are much clearer. Your tests actually say, "Hey, we're testing whether or not this particular behavior works in the system," and we have some business rules that we've agreed with the you know, product team, business analyst, whatever they they kind of call the customer. Um, and so we can code those rules into essentially our tests. Mm-hmm. And we know that the only reason those should be changing is because we've agreed with the customer that, hey, they want to change the way that works. And those tests are really useful to you because they do provide that level of documentation. Whereas tests that say this given class method, when I call it returns five, are less useful because I've got no idea whether or not when it now returns oh. seven, whether that's because... And I've changed something that should return seven or right. whether effectively it still should be returning five. It yeah. really just comes down to paying attention, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, paying attention to what you're doing and what these tests are returning. Right. Exactly. What, can, what more can we glean out of them? So uh, that, that whole model of ports and apps architecture really helps you, I think, find the place for your tests as that kind of adapter level uh, model. Mm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? It must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to make this conversation domain more ignorant by removing the intelligent query port. Well, okay. <laughs> wow. That's more of an octagonal architecture. Uh, probably. I okay. I think it's pretty flat, actually. Pentagonal. Something Pen- bad. Something bad. Yeah, <laughs> pentagonal. That's right. It's actually time to give away a SyncFusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, is your big data strategy causing you headaches? Ditch the complicated configuration and jargon. Pump up your development with the only easy-to-use big data solution for Windows. The SyncFusion Big Data Platform installs quickly and is packed with samples to help you get up and running in 15 minutes or less. Check it out now at SyncFusion.com and start working with big data in under 15 minutes. And even if you aren't working with big data, you can still take advantage of over 500 SyncFusion controls to help you build stunning applications or you can broaden your skill set with the free ebooks Syncfusion offers on over 40 topics. Download those free trials and free ebooks at Syncfusion.com. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Tony Hinckley. Congratulations, Tony. Yeah. The crowd goes wild. Nice. Tony Hinckley's going wild right now. He's listening <laughs> to this. He goes, What? Me? <laughs> 
And uh, yep, Tony just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio, a big pile of awesome from Sync Fusion, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, they just keep growing. And it, every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, coming right up here, yes, we pick one lucky member to win $5,000 worth of technology, a shopping spree of technology. And we also like to ask our guests, Ian, if you had 5000 U.S. to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? It's quite a good question. Um, uh, and I was, I was thinking... I'm not really, I don't necessarily think of myself as a gadget guy. Right? Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, well, what is, what is kind of my, my usual setup? And my usual setup nowadays is a, uh, Retina MacBook Pro, mm-hmm. usually with a nice SSD because then it makes it faster on a virtual machine because they then tend to run, you know, Windows under VMware Fusion. Right. Um, Love it. Uh, and I quite like to have the ability to say, well, on this one machine, I can develop in multiple environments, yeah. Mac, Unix, and, and kind of Windows. And that, that kind of works for me. It's a one stop shop. Yep. Love um, it. And then because I'm used to uh, dual monitors, I tend to sit at home with a big cinema display yes. screen um, yeah. because that gives me the kind of real estate I need when writing code. Um, and then when you cut back to your actually just working on your laptop and you're thinking, I have to unpin this window, pin this window to get my debugger up and now I want to run my tests. And yeah. it's just not enough space unless you have a nice big screen. Also, it helps that you can watch other things on that big screen like sure. you know uh stuff from your amazon prime account etc so mm-hmm. um uh, yeah quite like that that's probably already knocked off by probably about three and a half uh grand haven't i since sure, i've yeah. done that yeah well if you work hard on a macbook pro you can spend five grand on it yeah, yeah. Um, stick enough memory and enough hard drive for ssd into it you can really burn through a lot of cash uh, but that's kind of my preferred setup and beyond that uh, um i you know i have a phone and i have a tablet I I am currently Apple. I'm not necessarily entwined to them forever. I think probably you know Apple will keep me on a phone just because I'm an iTunes user. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but that I, also leads you to the watch too. Uh, I, 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 see, I, I can't quite see the watch. <laughs> I, 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 Apple wants to sell me stuff to monitor my health and you know all the yeah. exercise etc. that I'm doing. Um, that it may not become a very used gadget, therefore. So, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> but I, you know. When we talked about this with um, with John Stark, yeah, just this idea of all of the things that you normally grab your phone and quickly look at the screen on, if it could be on your wrist, like that's going to help the battery life of your phone. But I also think it's sort of a cultural behavior too. This very much, you sort of leave the room when you take your phone out and look at it. The fact that you could flick to your wrist and just see the core things that are from your phone on it. But it's trouble, still just the trouble as the watch. The trouble, trouble the watch though, isn't it? Is, isn't it? It's always going to be a fail. Until we get a Dick Tracy watch where we can actually have video and talk to Everything's each other. Everything's right there. Because, yeah. because that's what we already want secretly in our hearts, isn't it? And so yeah. the first I'm person to spend some of your 5000 <laughs> to encourage Apple to continue developing that product. If nobody buys this product, yeah. they might give up on it. But, yeah. You know, the, I, we forget just how weak the original iPhone was. Right. Yeah. You know? And yeah. here was a phone that defined a genre. And the original device was, it was a 2G device. Well, I used to have, you know, a really old school Windows, um, PDA stroke phone, massive things oh, used yeah, to come right. around and mocked by people for. And I can remember, the um, iPack was uh, I can remember having one of those and a separate GPS device yes, and some yep. ordnance survey maps and being hiking and people, people looking at me like, this idea of being able to locate yourself on a map via GPS yeah, is madness here. Yeah. Madness. Yeah. It'll, It'll never amount to anything. <laughs> uh, you know, they do have a Star Trek communicator device. There's a company, we, we talked about this company on an earlier show. They have a little badge that you oh, can wear okay, yeah, chest yeah. and, you know, Kirk Joanna Primes. Scotty, will you come up here? I. Someone's, can't read the cue card. Someone, <laughs> someone is. They put. Someone's got a a prize out, don't they, for a tricorder. They want yeah. someone to the tricorder. Try and yeah. The initiative is a big one. Yeah. yeah. Just and, scan uh, you. There's a few. Yeah. Well, the health. Again, we get back to the whole health data thing. Yeah. How instrumented do we want our bodies to to understand how they're functioning? You know that Stark Gene Roddenberry was way in the past. He wasn't thinking ahead. Clearly, the quadcorder. <laughs> Is, <laughs> Not a tricorder. It's way more powerful than the tricorder. 
I don't know what that guy was thinking. He was smoking some serious crap. I never understood quite well. I was a tricorder. Some Star Trek fans would probably be horrified and write into you now. I didn't actually know what it was. Is it it because it only could do three things or? Maybe because it triangulates. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Which I don't would know ever mention it? Which would be a good reason for it to always be a tricorder. I don't know. That's funny. But why try? Yeah. Why not quarter? Bent. All right. So, I want to dive back into this. Yeah. Thing. Let's talk about some of the some of the ways that we can use ports and adapters. Um, you know, if you think about, I'm looking at uh, AlistairCoburn.us's uh, yep. page here, and he's got some great diagrams where you know he's got a trigger data port aside to this uh, application he's got notifications he's got database where you can mock out you know swap it out with a mock he's got the administration side and uh, all these adapters in there answering machine email a mock telephone on the notification side it's just really fascinating once you start thinking about the things that you could just plug in. I mean, this is sort of what's interesting about this is that we've been talking about modularity and plug-in architectures and stuff for years, but, but this really just sort of takes it all your whole app and deconstructs it so that it is modular by design from the beginning. It's not, it's not like a plug-in for WPF is going to be different than a plug-in for AS. I think, I think in some ways architectures, you know, and, and, and as soon as you do a layered architecture, people le- lean towards this. But it, this makes it really explicit. This idea of saying, yeah. um, "I'm going to be able to conceptualize my domain better if I understand that it's simply the th- it, it's what's providing the functionality, right. and these other pieces around the outside are really just there to help me do the input, output, and drive this process." Mm. Um, and uh, the classic layered architecture will. will will push you towards that but mm-hmm. this makes it very explicit it says um these are all just the means making those calls right so one of the things is you know uh you might have a rest api uh, talking to your uh domain over the port but you might also then have the uh a classic html website on the server side talking mm-hmm. over the same ports to basically your back end you could have a um, adapter for, say, um, a message queue like RabbitMQ, etc., right. reading thing, messages off a queue and then calling your port. So mm. this model works for a number of ideas. Mm. We um, so we at Huddle we have what we call a bit like Google. We have twenty percent time to get to work on community staff, open source software. Sure. Mm. So one of the things that I've got out there on my GitHub, which is just Ian Cooper, if you look for me, I'll, I'll share the link with you guys, is a, a package called Brighter. Um, it, it's called Paramore Brighter. I, I, I needed a naming scheme, so I decided for, to go for, for rock bands. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh-huh. Don't, don't shoot me. No um, problem. And uh, Brighter is a framework we use to implement the ports layer. Um, and that by itself is not that exciting. What it's, it's, it's essentially, you can take a, the idea of a command, bit your port layer for do your um, uh, command operation. And you can actually enhance it with a couple of ideas. One's a dispatcher, which says, rather than actually directly executing the command, I separate it into the parameters and the execution. So right. I say, okay, a dispatcher finds a handler for this. So you guys have probably seen this kind of code before, where essentially yeah. I write a handler, and I just go, command processor dot, dispatch that send, and it goes to where it says, I'll find that. And that gives you a nice ability to say, actually, you don't need to know at the point of the adapter who handles this. You just need to know that it's being sent over the port right. to find a handler. That means I could actually replace handlers very easily, yes. or I could have multiple handlers. Yeah, and you are, and that port could be further away than you think. It might be remote. It might be queued. Yes, yeah, so we'll come back in a second. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, really I'm point. jumping ahead. You are. That's probably a really good point. It's also connected to what we call a command processor, which basically says I can add some orthogonal functionality like logging, etc. Right. So we actually mm-hmm. let you do that on your handler. We say you can add some attributes on there. So you can add stuff like logging. We quite also like using a thing called poly, which is a, a policy framework. And that, what that does is it says, rather than write all these try-catch blocks myself, right. I could actually come up with one that supports doing things like retries or what a pattern called Circuit Breaker. There's a really good book like called Michael Nigel. I've got time to go into that called Release It, mm-hmm. which talks about how to make your software more robust by coping with failure through things like timeouts, retries, or a pattern called Circuit Breaker. Worth looking up if you haven't. If you don't right. know. We can mock up our handlers with attributes that support those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So we have this kind of command processor framework that says, 
a dispatcher framework that says basically, I'm going to take this command, I'm going to find a handler for it. Um, you just register handlers basically an agreed key. We tend to use the name of the command. Mm-hmm, right. Um, I'll find the handler for it, and you can run some other steps like logging, validation, etc. Before the endpoint handler is called. In the end, what we actually do is construct a chain of handlers right, and yeah. your your actual handlers on the end. But the other thing we can do is use a pattern called a work queue or a task queue. Um, uh, there's a say for example, if you know any Python, there's a project called Celery, which does similar thing, which is to say, well, rather than this handler being something that's actually in process. Could be out of process at True. the end of a message queue. So what we actually let you do is say, well, I'm going to write that handler, or I'm going to put it in this service, the Windows service over here, mm-hmm. and at the end of a message queue. So although you're calling it and it appears from your adapter and say, well, hey, I'm calling you, and uh, you're going to get the handler, it, it's been done asynchronously. Right. You get, and you've got an immediate response saying, got it, thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't know where it's done or not, but you don't actually care. You know that it's gone. Right. It's going to be handled. Which gives you, and the fancy name for it is setter, stage event driven architecture. Right. But it gives you the ability to kind of throttle very easily and cope with load because yeah. you can say, right. well, my front end web server, et cetera, really getting, getting the request in that it just says, okay, yeah, hand back and I'm, I'm done. So it's done that, that resource, which is only, I think it's like 5,000 requests, something like that for an average ESP on the web server. It gets to hand that back very quickly. Yes. And then you essentially put it on a queue. And then now I can handle it at a rate that my actual infrastructure can, can manage. Yeah. Well, you get that, that elasticity. It'll right. uh, soak up it in the form of a lot of queued items. And then it'll be digested over the time that take at a steady exactly. rate. Yeah. And so we help you with some infrastructure in that project, right? To, to say, I can build these um, consuming endpoint services in a way that's pretty seamless to me. So I just mm-hmm. write handlers. And I either and I register them, and I then either decide to put them at the end of a queue or not at the end of a queue. Right. Um, and we actually handle all of that work for you. And that's quite a nice feature around the way you way you're doing this. You're saying my adapter talks to a port, and I, the, the the connector to the actual other layer may actually be remote as well as being local. Right. So the hexagonal architecture seems like it's a a win win all the way around for just about any type of app. To me, um, is there any type of app that uh, this wouldn't work well with? Is there? Can you think of any use case? Um, you know, maybe I'm thinking of more more functional things, perhaps that are uh, larger in asynchronous scope. Maybe I don't know. I think I think the thing about all the, these kind of apps is that you know, lead architectures are web coping with complexity. Yeah. If you don't have any, com- if if you don't, if you have low complexity, mm-hmm. then it may be adding complexity to go to a layered architecture too early. But is there a kind of complexity that doesn't lend itself well to this? Is there, are, are you sort of, uh, I, I, it, I can't think of one, but. Um, I, I think most cases, I think layers can uh, help you and a hexagonal architecture can help you do that. I mean, when they talk about architectural styles, there's this notion called heterogeneous styles, which says, mm-hmm. um, any given component may itself actually be another architectural style. Sure. So one other one I talk about is pipeline architecture, so yeah. pipes and filters. So within that style, a given filter could be something quite complicated and it could be a layered architecture, but it might also be something very simple. Right. So within that context, that may be a more appropriate architecture for doing something where you have a stream of work to process and you want to process basically that with individual steps and you want to be able to reuse those steps in new areas and recompose them. Mm. Within those individual filters, you've got quite a lot of management of complexity. So they may not yeah. be worth within when I implement that filter, looking at something like an hexagonal architecture. Uh, maybe maybe too much complexity at that point. Sure. I'm already using a different architectural style to cope with that. Mm. Or if I'm writing, say, a simple console application that does a small piece of work, yeah. um, you know, that, those kind of things are probably not appropriate. So I think the idea is to say, you know. Don't just say, I'm always going to use this. Sure. But most, most of us are working on apps of sufficient complexity, I suspect, most of, yeah. in, in our day-to-day jobs. Yeah, it, it strikes me this is not about ultra-fast apps or ultra-broad apps. This seems like your typical web crud environment yeah. where sustainability is the important part. Right. This yeah, app's exactly. not going away. And yeah. It needs to be testable. It needs to be expandable. We don't want to rebuild it each time we have a new feature requirement. Right. And it's got to be able to tolerate that, especially when you get into cross-cutting concerns. Hey, mm-hmm. we've got new regulations in place and all of this stuff needs to be audited now. And yeah. then you're not talking about dismantling the app. It's just a new intercept yeah, inside I, of a given app. It's still that, isn't it? That, you know, 90% of uh, an app's life is actually in the maintenance phase. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you know, if your app's not maintainable and can't change, then that's a real problem. And mm-hmm. 
you know, one of the things I, I there's a Twitter conversation I was having with some people about careers, and one thing I said to people is, at some point, you should work, you should find an organisation that you're very comfortable in. You should stay there about five years, mm-hmm. because five years is long enough for you to meet your own mistakes coming back. Yes, to you. yes, um, yes. Yeah. And, Remember all those times you opened up Chuck Cohen and who was the idiot that wrote this? Oh, yeah. that was now me. the idiot is you. <laughs> yeah. And that's an enormously humbling lesson, but it yeah, teaches sure. you a lot about writing code that's maintainable. Mm-hmm. Because Everybody should be the idiot once in their career. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Sometimes also I look at code that I wrote a few years ago and think I was smarter then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's Boy, because... I was having a clever day that yeah, day. <laughs> but, 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 but more often than not, it's occasionally uh, who, who, who had... Who, what was I thinking? Or even worse, you get the situation where you think, what was the idiot that wrote this thinking? Right. You go into kind of like the blame effectively to try and find who was the idiot that thought that and realize you were the idiot. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that half hour of you hating code, not knowing it was your own. Yeah. Yep. Right. And then yep. when the reality hits, you're like, wow. I, you know, I, I find <laughs> that the humility that comes from experience yeah. is that those moments, the idiot was you. Sure. And you were busy trying to kill yourself. I mean, I hope that I, I, one of the things I'd hope is that I've become uh, a, a better developer over time. Mm-hmm. But I also hope I'm a less arrogant developer over time. Yeah, that's I, an I interesting think, point. I think that when you're young, you believe you can do anything. When you're older, you you, you realize there's a lot you can't do right, uh, right. because you actually know how to do it a lot more. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, you finally know enough to know what to be afraid of. Right. Because you can go a long way in this c- career and not know enough yeah. to actually be afraid at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I always say that I tend to find when I start a new role or somewhere that there's an initial period where I think I know nothing. Right. Um, yeah. And then I learn enough to now know what I don't know. Yeah. Right. And that's the first step is, is learning enough to know what you don't know. Yeah, that's, right. that's quite a hard it's when you don't know what you don't know. That's yeah. a problem. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of a lot of people happy not knowing what they don't know because they feel very confident. Yeah. They don't know That's enough right. to be worried. They sleep quite well at night. Yeah. <laughs> Ignorance but, I mean, is bless. Yeah. Going back to boards and adapters, and of course, the useful thing you know we're talking about seeing testing as another adapters. So if I if I if I frame my test right and I essentially choose my ports layer as being this kind of facade that gives me the behaviors of the system that I'm exercising. Mm. One other advantage of that is that, you know, refactoring genuinely becomes a way of keeping that domain model fit. And one mm-hmm. of the problems I think that I've seen, I, I've seen a workplace where I've seen, uh, Brownfield Co., where uh, there's, a, there's a pattern called a Banyan tree architecture, where mm. individual slices uh, of the legacy application were obviously created by a developer who cared. Right. Um, and he wrote some code. The next guy that came along, there was insufficient test coverage in this legacy system, right. and they couldn't refactor. Mm. So that rather than touch this thing, they just wrote something else kind of parallel yeah. to it to right. do something similar. Yep. And the next guy came along, and each time they actually had better ideas about how to modify the system, but each time they couldn't roll that back across the whole system. Mm. So the whole thing was consistent because they were too afraid of, of changing anything. Mm-hmm. And your problem there becomes that it becomes then very hard to reason about the, the, yeah. the system. Yes. Yeah. And one of the... Uh, kind of telltale signs is you ask a developer to about changing something and the first question they ask is well when was it written because <laughs> when was it written tells me how it was written yeah. and that tells me how i might be able to modify it. right and archaeological a, knowledge right. of software oh, and that's man. a genuine problem uh but, we got to go back to the cretaceous period right. to fix uh, this thing that's after the asteroid hit so, so unless you can keep your software fit by refactoring that becomes a problem and the yes. nice thing i like about ports and adapters is it kind of says hey look there's this domain model in here so i'm going to keep refactoring mm-hmm. encouraged by these ports around it and protected with the tests that control them so I'm going to try and keep that thing in, in, in the same kind of shape the right. whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I decide to throw away one of my adapters and replace it with a new adapter, that's not really a problem for me. I've still got quite fit uh, code underneath. I'm not right. saying I'm only going to replace half this code. Just, or new stuff will be written using ASP.NVC, and the old portion of the website will continue to be server web forms, right. which has become really confusing for a developer. Sure, it's kind of, you know, sure the, yeah. The, the, the customer says, hey, can you make this change? And the guy's got to figure out, well, how expensive is that going to be? Is this the one we've written web forms? Would you write this basically with ASP.NVC? NVC? Or is this the, the web API that right. basically has got the JavaScript on the, on the other end? Well, and, and it's not like you have to convert everything from web forms to NVC all at once. But as long as there's a living project that's doing those migrations, whereas reaction to, can you fix this particular piece is, yeah, absolutely we can. It's the web forms one, but this is our excuse to get it into MVC. Yeah. 
you know, that there is a model there. I'm just, people get afraid of code bases. I'm not willing to recompile that anymore. And it may, you know, the, every time I compile it, it doesn't work like it used to. Yeah, that can stop you dead in your tracks. And the one thing you know, those of us with a bit of grain our beards can, can can predict is that the you know the frameworks you use will change, yeah. and you'll want to change because you'll want to take advantage of these stuff. I mean, I'm you know I'm really excited about ASP.NET um, Vnext yes. because uh, the ecosystem opportunities I think are really important to .NET. I think people are beginning to be more aware of the possibilities of having a, a, a well a rich open source ecosystem. Mm-hmm, that foundation's a great movement. You know, I'm really keen that at Huddle we use a 20% time effectively to contribute towards the community. And um, that that prospect is, is really exciting. But you're going to be shut out if you've got no way of saying, I'm going to take my existing code base. And I do have a route to actually, you know, move towards ASP.NET v, v yeah, next right, yeah. and embrace those areas. And that's much easier if, it's, if you can say, well, okay, when we get some work in to change that, as you're saying, that, that particular area, the first that we can do is actually host it now in ASP.vnext, move right. the calls across now basically to our ports layer to be in the ASP.vnext mm-hmm. kind of endpoints. We can take advantage of some of that, uh, that infrastructure that's going to become available to us through that ecosystem. Yeah. And if you can't do that, you get a lot of frustrated developers in your organization. Sure. Saying, I think the same comes with de- dev tools too. It's not yeah. just a deployment mm-hmm. environment, but are we willing to go to a new test platform, try move to the newer version of Studio, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. be able to experiment with those things because we have confidence in this code base. Yeah, yeah. that can be a, a hairy decision just to do that. Uh, Ian, are there any resources that you have on your website or blog that you can that we can link to uh, on our? Um, the best place to go really is to go to my GitHub site, um, Ian Cooper, and then go and look at the uh, Paramore repository where there's um, uh, Brighter in there. And there's a lot of links there about, uh, and its, docu- its documentation is not bad. It could, could be a lot more, but there's a lot of information about uh, hexagonal architectures uh, in that area. So that's a really, really place to go. a manifestation of a hexagonal yeah. architecture. Yeah. Great. Um, and there are a number of other um, useful repositories on there that most of my slide decks end up in a presentations repository on GitHub, just an easy way of sharing them. Um, and it's certainly worth having a look around. Um, I'm on Twitter as uh, iCooper, so I'm, I'm always willing to answer questions. So please ping me on Twitter, and I'm happy to talk about stuff. Ian Cooper, thanks for joining us this time. Uh, it's been great, guys. Thanks so much. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...